I had for breakfast was anxiety and panic. Uh, and then I ate some yogurt when I got here. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm, I'm joined today by Yoki uh, Driesen and Jennifer Williams, the uh, editor and deputy editor of our foreign section here. Um, and you guys are going to be launching a, a podcast of your own soon, right? Yes, we are. We are incredibly psyched. It launches next Thursday. It's called Worldly. So subscribe if you're on Apple Podcasts, if you're on Google, if you're on Stitcher, wherever you are, whatever you listen to. It is modeled heavily on the brilliance of the weeds, but just beyond the borders of the U.S. And it is meant to be a deep dive into both foreign policy and national security. It'll be one long kind of opening segment and then a shorter segment called Elsewhere that's meant to be a little bit lighter and something that's very undercovered. So you'll have the kind of deeper dive like we do on this show so well, and then also a little bit of candy at the end. Nice, nice. So it's uh, going to be the, the two of you and, and Zach Beecham? That's right. Our colleague, Zach, An who's excellent, on vacation. Stellar, Chris. Zach is not here, but we're doing kind of backdoor pilot style, uh, ha- having you two guys on, on the weeds. Um, we've been having, you know, requests from, from the Facebook group to do more sort of foreign coverage uh, on the show. I think we're actually going to address that primarily by by launching Worldly, but it's it's really good to have you guys here. Um, I've been super interested in this kind of brewing cutter story that's been playing out over the past several weeks because it feels like the first time that we've really seen just a crisis that is really external to the United States, not particularly about us, but it it lands on the president's desk uh, right. as things tend to in the world and you know Donald Trump has to has to try to deal with it and he's been dealing with it in a puzzling kind of way uh, but Jen can you take people back to the oranges of this like what happened a, a few weeks ago that set this off yeah absolutely so basically Saudi Arabia um, Bahrain the United Arab Emirates UAE uh, and Egypt all collectively led by Saudi Arabia, decided to abruptly, basically overnight, cut off all diplomatic ties with Qatar. Um, and then they went even further and cut off economic ties, shut down like air travel from Qatar. They even kind of issued a statement that like Qataris needed to get out of the countries. Um, so it was a really dramatic, huge break that was kind of for people who who don't follow this very closely. And even for people who do, it was kind of a rather stunning and dramatic overnight break. And basically, um, the reasons that Saudi Arabia and the others have given are that the Qataris sponsor and fund terrorism. And so that's kind of where Donald Trump kind of fits in. He agreed with Saudi Arabia when he was on that trip um, to the Middle East and basically uh, has kind of joined the Saudi Arabia kind of club and tweeted out some stuff about Qatar being state sponsors of terror and funding terrorism and stuff like that. And so the the implications of this sort of cut of economic ties to Qatar are, are quite grave for Qatar. I mean, because countries can sort of do sanctions or, or whatever on each other all the time. And it's it's not always necessarily a, a big deal. But if you happen to have like a map on hand and, and check it out, you will see that Qatar is this like little tiny finger like sticking off from Saudi Arabia. Um, so all kinds of stuff just traditionally gets there over land from Saudi Arabia. They're also nearby to United Arab Emirates, which 
Among other things, the UAE is just a big uh, port operator. Qatar is accustomed to getting supplies either through land routes from Saudi Arabia or as part of large container ships that are also destined for UAE. So the, the cutoff, I mean, it really hurts them, right? It's not just a kind of diplomatic giving right. them the finger, but it has really kind of serious implications for them and also serious implications for the United States. I mean, what's interesting is that Qatar is this bizarrely fascinating two-faced little country. Um, I've spent a fair bit of time there because of reason two. Reason one is it is without question a sponsor of terrorism, particularly Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood, who there, there's no questioning that Qatar does directly fund those two groups. Whether they also fund groups like al-Qaeda or ISIS is a different question. But Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood, which have political arms and military arms, receive money from Qatar. There's no question about that. The flip side is Qatar hosts the biggest U.S. base in the entire Middle East, which is also the nerve center for the air war against ISIS. At any given time, there are between 10 and 15,000 American troops living in Qatar and operating out of Qatar. So those bases are not in Saudi Arabia. They're not in the UAE. They're not in Egypt. They're in Qatar, which means that for the Pentagon, Qatar is absolutely vital. So when this happened, when the Saudis first basically went to diplomatic and economic war with Qatar, the hope was, okay, let's as the U.S. back off and let the Saudis kind of deal with it. And then, of course, Donald Trump waded into it and made it not just a Saudi-Qatari issue, but a U.S.-Qatari issue, because Donald Trump publicly at the Rose Garden and also over Twitter repeatedly has said, Qatar is a sponsor of terrorism, and that's why I support the Saudis doing this, which is really dangerous and stupid, because the Pentagon desperately needs Qatar. The war against ISIS desperately needs Qatar. So it's one thing if the Saudis are fighting them, and you can sort of just shunt it off as an Arab-on-Arab, Gulfian-Gulfi issue. But when Trump insists on framing it as a U.S. Qatar issue, people in the Pentagon, somebody I ran into at a party who's a, a high-ranking person, an admiral, one-star admiral, his response when I asked about it was, we have no fucking idea. I mean, verbatim. Because they're looking at Trump's comments and just thinking, holy hell, daily for us as a military, we need Qatar. He should just stop talking about it. And of course he won't. And this is not a coincidence, right? I mean, from Qatar's point of view, one of the main reasons to host this giant, strategically crucial American military facility is that it's supposed to buy them some kind of freedom of action regionally. Because otherwise, I, I mean, as, as you're seeing here, right, it's it's a very rich country because of uh, what natural gas. Oil and natural gas. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's really small. They would be under the Saudi thumb naturally. But the thinking is implicitly that if you have sort of America's probably like the most important military single base we have is there, that we're going to, you know, at least to an extent, have their back in this kind of fight. Right, definitely. And just one quick thing to clarify, just for our listeners to make sure, uh, Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood, so the Muslim Brotherhood isn't a terrorist organization. Hamas definitely is. But I just wanted to clarify really quickly. The other kind of connections that Qatar has to funding, which are like the really problematic part in terms of like the U.S. fight against ISIS and um, U.S. involvement in Syria is that Qataris connected to maybe the government and the foreign ministry and the ruling family um, have provided significant, significant support to Islamist jihadist groups that are on the ground fighting in Syria against the Syrian government. The problem is that it's really hard to kind of contain when you give money to one group and weapons to one group in Syria. It's hard to keep those weapons just in that group. And because the al-Qaeda-linked group, the formerly called the Nusra Front, um, they are one of the most powerful, kind of most effective fighting forces in, in that area. So even if you don't actively fund them directly, like there's 
a huge chance that no matter what, you're going to end up having your weapons go to them. And so that's kind of one of the biggest problems. And so Saudi Arabia is kind of saying that, like, the amount of funding um, and, like, the amount of support to these jihadist groups is far, far deeper, far larger than than the Qataris are really letting on. But it's, it's also worth distinguishing between, like, what are American sort of longstanding complaints with Qatar and what are the Saudi and Egyptian complaints, right? right. So, so the U.S. had been involved in arming or training moderate Syrian rebels, and right. we had been dancing on the sort of knife's edge that, that you were describing, yeah. then, right? That it's like, you can say, well, I'm going to back this guy, but not that guy. But at the end of the day, if they're all fighting against the Syrian government, there's some mixture. But the Qataris... I think most American officials feel we're being very incautious about that. Right. Right. And this was a U.S. kind of grievance. Right. But to the Arab states, our other Arab allies are probably upset about that, but also have this set of complaints that is much more focused on Al Jazeera, the Muslim Brotherhood, and basically they feel that Qatar is backing the domestic political opposition in Egypt and and other places like that, which is probably not like America's fight, right? Definitely. I think that's exactly right. And for the Gulf states, they've been pumping tens of billions of dollars a year into Egypt precisely because they felt that the Sisi government might fall otherwise. And because they also felt that Qatar was funding the Muslim Brotherhood. Jen's right. That was a good correction that they don't currently uh, use violence, although they have in the past. But there was a fear that the domestic stability of Egypt, which is obviously the biggest, most populous, arguably the most important Arab country, could fall because of what Qatar was doing. And I'm glad you flagged Al Jazeera. I mean, it's a phrase that I think a lot of our listeners probably have heard. Maybe they've had occasion to watch the English broadcasts. We often see it through the American prism. Is Al Jazeera biased against the U.S.? Is Al Jazeera anti-American and and pro-terrorist, whatever? It's kind of like the Fox News talking point on Al Jazeera. In the Arab world, it's a totally different issue. In the Arab world, it's, is Al Jazeera anti-Saudi Arabia and anti-UAE? It's seen as kind of an arm of the Qatari government. And what prompted this current fight, the terror funding issue has loomed over after a very long time, but it's Al Jazeera. There are reports on Al Jazeera and on other, even more directly, Qatari state-owned media that were allegedly quoting Saudi officials and other Gulf officials saying things that those officials later said they did not say. And so part of the response was, we're going to come back at you not just over terror funding, but because you're using your like Arab Pravda to bash us and our governments. And it's just interesting when we're looking at it kind of from the U.S. frame, there's the military side, there's the Al Jazeera side, there's the domestic side, and there's the Iranian side, which is also part of this kind of off to the side, not directly in the Saudi-Qatari fight, but directly in the question of why would Saudi Arabia now decide to do this? And part of the answer is Saudi Arabia is locked in this kind of cold war with the Iranians on one side, and they want to consolidate power wherever else they can in the Arab world and see Qatar as as an obstacle to that. And so now bringing... Trump sort of back into it, right? So he took office, and one of the first things we saw was um, he sort of brought the U.S. back into close alignment with Egypt, where we had often been historically, but where the, the Obama administration, because of the military coup in Egypt, had been maintaining a kind of uh, distance from Sisi and his government, even while on a formal level, I guess not that much changed, but we were trying to indicate some kind of displeasure with, with the Egyptian situation. And Obama had moved at least a little bit to create some daylight between the U.S. and 
Saudi Arabia in, in the region had been a little bit restrained in the kind of military equipment that we were giving them to use in Yemen. Uh, the Saudis were not appreciative of Obama's uh, diplomatic efforts in Iran. And Trump had really moved back to sort of close partnership with those two countries, went and and laid hands on an orb uh, with the leaders of Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And then with this Qatar thing seems to have seen uncritically embracing the Saudi position as a natural extension of that kind of whole realignment. But the American military does not see it that way, right? I mean, I think that James Mattis, I think, was skeptical of Obama's Iran approach, I think was probably on board for the sort of broadly Trump, like, let's make up and be nice with our traditional allies. But the military has really not wanted to just, like, go all in against Qatar. Because, again, we have a base there. We have a strategic relationship. It's also kind of bizarre, in fact, that, like, Yes, Trump has completely bought into the Saudi kind of narrative and kind of gone like full throttle in Saudi's corner. But it seems to be like a really kind of fast, quick turn on Qatar. So like when he went to the Middle East on that trip, when he went to Riyadh to meet with all those leaders of Arab and Muslim countries, he met with the Qataris and was like, you know, we've had a great relationship. You know, we really appreciate your help on counterterrorism. Let's do an arms deal. This is great. Like we're good friends. And then literally like the next day, I guess, or that day, he talked to the Saudis. And it seems like overnight he changed his mind. And, and then, you know, just a couple of weeks later was, you know, publicly in the Rose Garden, you know, accusing the Qataris of, of funding terrorism. It was just like a really radical kind of shift. Like the broader shift makes sense that, you know, he was obviously always kind of interested in moving us closer to Saudi Arabia. But it just seems it's this weird, like, schizophrenic policy that's happening. So, you know, even the State Department, Mattis, I mean, they seem to be kind of trying to figure out how to maintain a lot of our ties with Qatar while Trump is kind of tweeting and shouting. Well, so Trump, I mean, has a golf course in Dubai and nothing in in Doha. So, you know, you you can see how these things come together. Um, But wait, so, so this sort of broke out. And initially... The military was putting out, you know, things are okay. Right. We still got our base. Life is good. Uh, and then Trump is just on Twitter and he's going like, oh, yeah, they're really bad. They're funding terrorism. And nobody knows what that means. And it's confusing. And then I watched Trump's press conference with the president of Romania, right. where, again, he just kind of I mean, it was a press conference with the president of Romania. There was no particular need to address this at all. And he kind of like went off the handle at at Qatar and how they're funding terrorism. But at the same time, if you were to just sort of bracket the president of the United States and ignore him, everything seems fine, right? The secretary of state said— I think that goes for a whole lot of different issues, to be fair. (laughs) Well, no, but, you know, I I mean, a lot of domestic policy issues, right? Like the Department of Health and Human Services is clearly— backing the Trump administration's healthcare bill. But the Secretary of State said, right, that like this blockade was unhelpful, that we wanted them to to wind it down. Right. And we just completed a very large uh sale of what was it, fighter jets? Yeah, it was a uh, twelve billion dollars worth of the most recent model of the F sixteen. Right. So that's not what you would do if you thought you wanted to help Saudi Arabia twist Qatar's arm. I mean part of I think why the military is so I don't want to say pro-Qatari, but why they have the view they have isn't just that they have the base in Qatar. It's why they have the base in Qatar. Right. You know, remember, the U.S. bases in the Middle East, the big ones, used to be in Saudi Arabia. One of the worst terror attacks in history was against a U.S. military housing complex, the Kobar Tower. 
housing complex in Saudi Arabia. It was Air Force uh, troops and their families, which killed, I think it was 100 people or 150 people. But it was one of the worst terror attacks in American history. So those bases had once been in Saudi Arabia and now were consolidated and shifted to Qatar. So for the U.S. military, it isn't just Qatar as an ally now. It's that they look in Saudi Arabia and say, wait a minute, you used to be an ally and help us, and then you booted us the hell out. So what's going on? You know, Trump, I think part of it, beyond possibly the golf course, although golf course diplomacy with Trump, who the hell knows? <laughs> um, the Saudis very literally rolled out the red carpet. They brought out the orb. They sort of knew how to suck up to him and say, we kind of get you, right? Like we have the same aesthetic taste of gold and eagles and family business above all. The Qataris, by virtue of the fact that they didn't go, go to Qatar, did not. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that Trump Whoever the last person is that he listens to, domestically or foreign, that's often the positions he adopts. And he, the last people he spoke to on this were Saudi, not Qatari. It is very dangerous, though, that you have Rex Tillerson, who is a smart man, a capable man, and a very moderate man. He spent most of his life dealing with countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia. But it's hard when you have a, a foreign secretary of any country, but especially a secretary of state, say something. And then literally one hour later, as was the case here, Donald Trump says the opposite. You know, I just finished rereading a biography of James Baker who's very likely the best secretary of state of the last 50 years. And part of it was every country in the world knew that if he said something, it's as if it came from the mouth of George Bush. There was no daylight. And that was that's what made him so effective. If you're now flash forward to the Trump era and Rex Tillerson were sitting in the studio here with us and said something that sounded great and we're all nodding our heads sagely and saying, oh, that sounds smart. But then we have no way of knowing at all if that's what Trump believes. And that's a real problem, not just in Qatar, Saudi Arabia, but in NATO, any issue where there's a diplomatic issue aside to it, which is to say any issue. If you can't trust the Secretary of State, that's a really big problem. Right, because, I mean, diplomacy is important and it's difficult, but it a lot of it is just talking, right? I mean, he doesn't have aircraft carriers at his disposal, right? I mean, the power of diplomats comes from the idea that they can speak knowledgeably and authoritatively on behalf of their countries. And if you have a situation where that's clearly not the case, then it's like, what is it? what is the State Department for? Right. right. I think that's the critical problem right now. And especially with like there are tons of unfilled positions still at the State Department. They're, you know, cutting funding or trying, you know, proposing cutting funding. So, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like what is Rex Tillerson's job? Like what is he for besides giving speeches at like, you know, global business development conferences and, you know, mild appearances at small diplomatic events? But when it comes to like the real hard hitting diplomacy, I mean, you would have to be you would have to be crazy to think that you would, you know, sit down and make a deal with Tillerson. I mean, just it makes no sense. Like you would just naturally skip him and just go right to Jared Kushner or, you know, right to the president. It would make no sense to to even think that you could trust that Rex Tillerson actually would have the ear of the president or the mouth of the president. Right. What's going on sort of on the ground in the region? We've had this for weeks. Are people starving to death in, in Qatar or have they found other ways to get food and basic kind of stuff that a remote oil-rich peninsula needs to, to get by in its life. So if you're lucky enough to be in one of the two countries where Saudi Arabia is currently waging some form of war and you're in the Qatar side of it, things are pretty good because right. you have the extraordinarily wealth. It's worth remembering this region is so rich that the UAE is tugging a literal iceberg to the UAE so it could have more water. So money for, is not an issue for any of these countries. So for Qatar right now, they can, you're right at the outset to say that it is a real risk and will get worse over time. But for now, they could just keep flying stuff in. The other country where Saudi Arabia is at, is at war, where it's not diplomatic or economic, but it's bombs falling, is Yemen. And if you're a Yemeni, your life is is misery. 
know, the Saudis, despite being given weaponry by the U.S., intelligence by the U.S., so we are complicit in what's happening in Yemen, have killed thousands upon thousands of civilians, including a lot of children, some of whom are dying. We got a pitch yesterday from a freelancer, a piece on, and Jen, you have the numbers probably, but the number of children in, in Yemen, sorry, dying of cholera. Yeah, I think it's like one child is infected with cholera in Yemen every 35 seconds right. now, which is just staggering. It's just a staggering statistic. Yemen, A, despite being in the sort of gulfy area, does not have vast oil and gas wealth. No. And they've pummeled the sort of infrastructure, physical infrastructure of, of the country, which is now collapsing. I mean, there's, there's civilians who have been killed by the weapons, but what we're seeing is disease, famine, second-order consequences of the sort of total breakdown of the the physical infrastructure of the country there. And I think the reason why I wanted to flag Yemen is, you know, you're making the point at the outset, you and Jen both, that he has helped kind of reorient the U.S. back towards Saudi Arabia, where it had been in the past. Part of the reason why under Obama, the U.S. shifted from that was Obama was watching what was happening in Yemen and was horrified. And so there were actual weapons deals with Saudi Arabia that the Obama administration held up because they were so concerned about what Yemen was suffering as a result of the Saudi bombing campaign. Trump came in, and this will surprise none of us, none of our listeners, immediately lifted those. So all the weapons that had been held up by Obama because of, you know, arguably war crimes being committed by the Saudis in Yemen, those weapons are now flowing again. And it's worth all of us thinking about this because diplomacy is one thing and words are one thing and they matter. But when the U.S. is funding somebody, in this case, Saudi Arabia, that's basically carpet bombing civilian areas of another country, we are, as a country, complicit in this. This is not the U.S. verbally endorsing Saudi Arabia. This isn't the U.S. signing a communique with Saudi Arabia. This is the U.S. providing weapons to one country, intelligence to one country, that's then carpet bombing another country. And so we, as a country, bear responsibility. It's easy to forget that because there's so much other stuff that Trump is doing that we're also scared and worried and stunned by. But this one shouldn't be forgotten because the human suffering in Yemen that we, again, have some responsibility for, is staggering. It's the human suffering, and it's also, I mean, there is a, a strategic question, right? I mean, we've had a sort of seesawing back and forth since since 9-11 in different respects about this, but there was certainly a, a strand of thought in elements of both the Bush and the Obama administration that was like, look, the United States can't just stand four square behind the most repressive sort of approaches forever and ever and ever, that there is obviously going to be backlash to that, that if people are suffering and they're fighting against, you know, whether it's the Saudi government, whether it's the Egyptian government, but they know that the hand of the United States right. is behind those governments, that we become targets as a result. And so there was, I mean, in different ways, both the Bush and the Obama administration tried to have both a, a counterterrorism strategy and also at least thought they should have some kind of a political approach to these conflicts. And Trump is really giving up on that idea, right? I mean, he's saying what we need to do is kill people, bad guys, presumably, but it's all stick sort of all-violence, all-repression approach to the U.S. relationship with the Arab world. Right. And I think it's also worth flagging that when we talk about Qatar funding, you know, rebels on the ground in Syria, Saudi Arabia is not innocent in that either. Like, you know, Saudi Arabia is saying, oh, you know, Qatar funds these these groups. Like, 
so does Saudi Arabia. You know, and Saudi Arabia itself has had lots of issues that we've had with them in terms of like the same kind of networks of funding that have come from people who are maybe connected with the royal family or who are, you know, also, I mean, practically, you know, half of Saudi Arabia is connected to the royal family because they are the royal family. But funding, you know, through these um, maybe charity groups or through other networks, these hawala, these uh, informal kind of money lending networks to these terrorist groups, to these kind of Salafi jihadist groups. So Saudi is just as involved in this thing, in this kind of whole terrorism kind of network, and arguably did a lot more for a lot longer than Qatar ever did. Right. I mean, on the sort of global ideological terror group sort of front, it's hard to see drawing that kind of like strong Trumpian Saudi's good Qatari's bad, where where there's a real difference in like who Saudi and Qatar are funding, though, is in Egypt and in Libya, right? right? I mean, that's that's why I sort of distinguish between the kind of message disagreement, which is very much about international terrorism, right. and the like concrete disagreement about CC versus the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. And I don't know what's going on in Libya, but it's like UAE is funding one group of people and Qatar the other. Is that? Right. Yeah, it's, it's also Syria. I mean, Syria, Jen flagged this. I'm glad, I'm glad that you did earlier. But in Syria, the Saudis from the beginning have wanted us sat out. They've been pumping money in and they've said to the U.S., like, let us do this. Like, if to Obama, if you won't, we have the money too. We're not a poor country. Get the hell out of the way. And Obama kept, you know, basically saying, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Trump is now saying, yes, 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 yes. But it, Syria is one of the places where the, the break is even more consequential because if you have the Saudis funding groups that are, for the most part, directly fighting Assad, Qatar-funded groups that in many cases are not, where their, their loyalties are kind of hard to gauge, that are also linked to al-Qaeda, that also carry out attacks on civilian targets. You have a real split there, too. And we think back to 9-11. These were not hijackers from Qatar, right? right. These were hijackers from Saudi Arabia. When we look at some of the schools, madrasas, hospitals all over the world whose governments are now saying, wait a minute, where do these fundamentalist, really scary schools and hospitals come from? Those were in Qatari. Those were funded by the Saudi government. So Trump loves to see the world as black-white, that there's winner, there's loser, and everything. It's all zero-sum. And so he's gone all in on Saudi Arabia as this great ally. They have this wonderful orb. They've got this great red carpet everywhere. Qatar is this terrible country. You know, they're the worst, sad, et cetera. But that's really, really dumb because there's no part of the world where the gray area covers more of it than the Persian Gulf and the Mideast. And Trump doesn't seem to get that. The one who does, and the only person, I think, whose words really matter to other countries is Jim Mattis. So Mattis and Tillerson are very close. They talk a few times a week. They have lunch once a week. But Mattis is the one person so far whose word, at least until now, Trump doesn't undercut. That could change at any moment. But for the moment, when Mattis says something, it tends to stick. When Tillerson says something, it doesn't. So you've got Jared Kushner as kind of a shadow secretary of state on one side. Jim Mattis is a shadow secretary of state on the other. And then Rex Tillerson, despite his good looks and charisma, kind of off on his own, just sort of mumbling stuff that doesn't carry much weight. The Weeds is sponsored by the Showtime documentary film, The Putin Interviews. Through a series of candid conversations, filmmaker Oliver Stone gives a fascinating and intimate look into the psyche of Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's an unprecedented four-night event now streaming on Showtime. If you enter code THEWEEDS at checkout on Showtime.com, you can receive a special extended 30-day free trial. The offer expires on June 30th, so hurry up. On the subject of Madison and his weight, to shift gears a, a little, we we had this, I thought, slightly curious, you know, White House sort of statement coming out recently that Trump was going to 
delegate the decision about troop levels in Afghanistan to the Secretary of Defense, who then, uh, I think, has come out with with the idea that there's 4,000 additional troops are going to come in, in the short term. I mean, it was funny. I mean, presidents always get recommendations from the military about military matters and can accept them or reject them. I, I mean, you legally speaking, right? I mean, Trump is still the president of the United States. He can order what he wants, uh, but seemed very interested in making this really sort of like big show of, on the one hand, sort of deference and respect, we're going to let the Pentagon do what it wants. But on the other hand, it, it felt to me like a slightly dodgy kind of like, don't hold me responsible for whether this works out or not. And in general, I would say the story of, you know, the United States and Afghanistan over the past what's it been, 17 years now, is you you don't really want to be the person who's held responsible. It has not produced a lot of really happy endings. That's interesting. I actually hadn't hadn't thought about it as like a not wanting to be held responsible. It's entirely possible that that's part of it. Uh, I saw it more as just complete disinterest. It's just not something that interests Donald Trump um, and that he's happy to just kind of let it go and whatever, you guys handle this. Um, I thought it was striking that there were all these reports that he had never once so far spoken at all, either in person or on the phone with the the top commander in Afghanistan, like the person in charge of running the fight. Um, and I saw somebody, you know, making this point on Twitter that, you know, he's managed to find the time to call Jim Comey several times and complain about this investigation and, you know, sit down and tweet all this crazy stuff. Um, you know, he makes time in his day to watch all the cable news channels, but he can't be bothered to call up and discuss, like, a major war that our country has been in for, you know, well over a decade coming up on two decades. I find that kind of a staggering fact. And if it's true, I mean, that's, it's clear that he just seems completely disinterested in that. And so the fact that leaving it to the generals to, to do that, I mean, there, there are pros and cons to that um, in terms of, you know, in one way, you know, for strategy and running a war, that may be a good idea for democracy kind of in general and, you know, civilian control of the military, it's maybe more questionable. I mean, the one place, you know, Matt, to your point where you saw the dodge was after the raid in Yemen when he first took office. This was a raid that Obama had considered but not done. Trump came in. He was briefed over dinner, signed off on it. The raid went terribly awry. You had a Navy SEAL killed, a lot of civilians killed, including an eight-year-old girl. After it happened, Trump's response was in a complete break with decades of presidential history was not the buck stops with me. It was the generals. Right. The generals lost the, the SEAL's name was Ryan. He said the generals lost Ryan. And that was really, to people in the military, kind of eye-opening that the commander-in-chief was basically saying, hey, don't look at me. Look at the generals. I just signed off on it. They're the ones who planned it. There is a real danger of escalation when you give a military, no matter how good. Jim Mattis might be the warrior monk and the saint that he's portrayed to be. He is still a human being. He's still someone who makes mistakes. If you say to the military, yep, just keep doing what you want to do, you see, on the one hand, troop levels rise kind of quietly, 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 4,000 here, another 4,000 there. And then you had this incredible moment some weeks back where the biggest non-nuclear weapon the U.S. Was, had ever used was used in Afghanistan, the Moab, the mother of all bombs. Incidentally, it prompted this kind of weird sort of weapon porngasm on Fox News of people just sort of, uh, Geraldo Rivera said, that's what freedom looks like, as mm-hmm. this weapon vaporizes a big part of Afghanistan. That was signed off on not by the president, not by the vice president, not even by Mattis, not by the commander of CENTCOM, which oversees both wars. That was John Nicholson in Afghanistan ordering the use of this with no one else needing to know about it. That's unimaginable, not just under Obama, but under any other president. I mean, this bomb is the biggest thing we have. This thing can vaporize, if it was used in a city, much of the city. And the president didn't know and didn't care. So you have, on the one hand, the risk of escalation. 
Mm-hmm. And on the other, if something goes wrong, you could see a real split between Trump and the military where he says, hey, it's all their fault. And the military says, no, wait a minute. You're the commander in chief. It's your fault. And if that happens, that's where things get very dangerous very quickly. I, I think in Afghanistan, also, it's the critical thing here is that, you know, what are the war aims of the United States in Afghanistan at this point is very hazy, right? And and this is like why you have political authorities leading states ultimately is that like there are a lot of technical military questions in warfare, um, but there are also critical political questions like what are we trying to do, right? And And the war in Afghanistan has gone on for so long and it has had so many twists and turns, right? There was a point at which the goal was kick the Taliban out of authority and and stand something else up, you know, and that happened very quickly, sort of successfully. There was a period of sort of largely ignoring it. Uh, The Obama administration for a while put a great deal of emphasis on they were going to hunt down and and kill Osama bin Laden, and and they accomplished that. But we have not seen over this whole long period the emergence of a stable, friendly government that exercises control over the territory. And there are lots of different ways that Afghanistan could be stabilized. There's lots of different ways you could conceptualize what are America's interests there. And to simply ask military commanders, well, you just decide what you want to do. It, I mean, it begs the question of like, what are what are they supposed to be accomplishing? Right. And I think what's really, really fascinating about this right now is that this actually ties back to the Qatar issue in a weird way through the Taliban. So I think most analysts would probably agree that at some point the Taliban will have to be dealt with in a political sense beyond just a military sense. They control, you know, still massive amounts and increasing amounts of territory in Afghanistan. They are, you know, a, a political actor, as well as a, you know, a horrible terrorist actor. But the Taliban has its offices in Qatar. Basically, everyone decided to do that because they saw Qatar as kind of like a nice neutral place where where we could kind of go and meet. And so Qatar has actually been really critical for the U.S. in the respect of dealing with the Taliban. So the Bo Bergdahl release, uh, Qatar played a huge role in that because that's where First of all, we released the the so-called Taliban Five from, from Guantanamo. We released them to Qatar and said that the Qatari government agreed to kind of keep an eye on them and, and you know, make sure they don't do anything, make sure they don't travel. They didn't do that so well and kind of fucked up and let one guy leave for a while. But Qatar is actually kind of really important to the U.S. in that respect, too. Um, and in terms of like the, the peace process in Afghanistan, such as there is one, which there really isn't right now. Um, the fact that like we tend to only deal with the Taliban through Qatar is kind of a really important, weird like kink in all of this now that we're also fighting with Qatar. So, you know, one of the gripes that we have about, you know, the Qataris, you know, funding terrorism and um, and giving safe haven to terrorists, that's actually worked out really well for us. You know, we like that when it's, you know, useful to us. Like, we like that the Taliban has an office there because we can go deal with them and they have an actual physical office. There's a joke in sort of dork journalists slash dork academic circles about Israel-Palestine where you could just have one story written if you're a journalist about peace talks resume, other story about peace talks stop and just keep running them again and again with no change. Right. You could do that for Afghanistan too. I spent a fair bit of time there over the years, and the U.S. goal for the last eight or nine years has been the same. It's hammer the Taliban enough that they come to the peace table in a sentence. That That's the goal. And it hasn't really ever worked because every time the Taliban come to the peace talks, sort of, kind of, they're at the same time continuing to gobble up territory. 
And if you're the Taliban, you have no incentive whatsoever to strike a deal because you're winning. Jim Mattis was up on the Hill this past week and was asked about Afghanistan, and he said, we are not winning. You know, the commander on the ground there has said, we have no momentum. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has said that the Taliban have momentum. So if you're them, why make any kind of deal that involves sharing power when you feel like you control the South already? You control the East pretty much entirely. You don't have Kabul yet, but you sort of have it on all sides. Why give up anything if you feel like you could just conquer the rest? And so the U.S. goal for a long time has been this idea that maybe, just maybe, just maybe there'll be a peace deal. It's never happened. And it's not happened in 2008, 9, 10, now in 2017. And so now if you're saying, well, okay, we're sending 4,000 more troops, why are we doing that? And possibly 9,000 more, which is the number the Pentagon uses. If all it is is to keep hammering the Taliban to bring them to the peace talks, why would we think it would work now when it didn't work when we had 120,000 troops in Afghanistan? I find it, frankly, just kind of baffling and really sort of heartbreaking because Afghanistan and Iraq, if you compare the two, just militarily. So in Iraq, we spend tens of billions of dollars building a military. ISIS came in, the military basically just left, dropped their uniforms and just ran away. ISIS conquered Iraq, big parts of Iraq. In Afghanistan, we did the same, tens of billions of dollars to build the Afghan military. They have not run away. They've stayed and they've fought and they've lost. So they had 5,000 battle deaths just last year. That's more than the U.S. has had in 17 years. It's almost double. So for the U.S., if you're funneling money to the Afghan military in the hope that between them and us, you can be the Taliban to the peace table, nothing has given you any hope that it will work now or in the past or in the future. Right. I think what's really striking, too, just to follow up on that, um, you know, when Mattis was on the Hill, John McCain actually seemed to have that same idea. I mean, he was pounding Mattis saying, you're telling me we've been in, you know, this administration has been as, been in office for as many months as, as it has, and you still don't have an Afghan strategy. Like, what is your strategy? And Mattis was like, no, we don't. Sorry, I'll get back to you on that. And he basically said that like mid-July, he would come out and, and present like the strategy. And then literally like the next day, there are reports out of the, the White House that, you know, we're going to be sending 4,000 more troops. So there were a lot of people who were like, wait, we just, I thought we didn't have a strategy. Like the Secretary of Defense just literally told John McCain in a congressional testimony, no, I don't have a strategy. So what are those 4,000 troops in service of? Like, you got the cart before the horse there, and it's a little disturbing. This is, you know, probably one of these questions that has no good answer, but but it always puzzles me. Like, why is it so difficult for the wealthy and powerful United States of America to train and equip local allies in Afghanistan who are capable of fighting a group of people who, I mean, there's some external support for the Taliban, but it pales in comparison to the resources that are at the disposal of the United States. I mean, why would it require thousands or tens of thousands of, of American troops to put together a, you know, a fighting force that that can win? I mean, can't we get them, you know, good good guns right. and, and stuff? Like what what's up? Because it's because it's not like Iraq where where people have been running away, right? I mean, they really are fighting. Well, they have been running away from battle, but there has been massive attrition. So there have been tons of, of Afghan army, you know, soldiers defecting sometimes to the Taliban, sometimes working for both at the same time. There's a joke in the military about how we have picked in Afghanistan the only Afghans who don't fight all that well. I mean, you think about Afghanistan, this is a country that's kicked out foreign fighters and foreign armies for more than a century. I mean, right. the British went in thinking they'd win. They lost. They're kind they of good at this. Yeah, they, they, this is not new to them, right? The Russians went in, they lost, we were in, and, and we are certainly not winning. I think part of it is the Afghan central government is either, depending on where you are in the country, um, unpopular, 
which is the case in the South when I've been there, or irrelevant if you're in the East. Afghanistan is so remote that I spent time in villages where not only had they never been to Kabul, they'd never left their valley. So if you're someone in that village or in that region, Kabul and the whole idea of a central government, it, it, it might as well be on Mars. What you know of is the Taliban, because the Taliban have always been there. Those variants of the groups have been there since the Soviet era. And what the Taliban signifies to you is control and safety and stability. The Taliban, when they ruled the country, there was no opium trade. There was no massive kind of problem of borders being wide open and people going in and out. There was no corruption because the Taliban had a very simple way of dealing with it, which is kill everybody involved. This is not There was remotely, some sex slavery, to uh, this be is, fair. Yeah, this, <laughs> is yes. not, this is not remotely to say this is a group that, that we like or that we share the values with. Obviously, that's not true. But if you're the average Afghan and you're trying to compare your life now, which is chaotic, the government, if you deal with it, is corrupt and inefficient to what it was then, when for the most part, the government you dealt with was moderately efficient, moderately corrupt. Again, setting aside, bracketing their human rights violations on a massive scale, you can kind of understand why that would be more appealing to you than a government that's sort of ephemera as far as you exist. Right. There's there's also one other, and absolutely, okay, I 100% agree, and, and I didn't mean to imply that you think the Taliban is awesome. I just, Thank you. They did run a tight ship uh, that also involved child sex slaves. But there's one other part of, of Afghanistan that I think we kind of have left off, and I think we're doing a disservice to listeners to explain uh, by not explaining. So we've kind of framed it as the Afghan central government backed by the U.S. versus the Taliban. And that's a really super simplistic way of looking at Afghanistan. That is one of the main kind of axes of conflict. But there are hundreds, literally, of groups who are splinter groups off the Taliban who are their own local warlord militias who are fighting. There's an ISIS offshoot that's now on the ground trying to kind of recruit people from the Taliban. There are hundreds of different groups, local militias, local warlords who are running their own basically private fiefdoms. And they have, you know, their own sources of financing through, you know, money laundering, through opium, through, you know, various sources. And they have their own little private militias. And so trying to get all these different groups, like you just have so many divided loyalties. So you're trying to put together this national army in a place where, the idea of like a national kind of structure, like he said, is kind of just not a reality. And it's not that like they can't conceive of it. It's just not a reality. I mean, like if you have a central government that is not capable of actually providing services really far out or exerting authority, like why would you think of that as like the valid legitimate government when, you know, there's a local warlord that's, you know, way more powerful and that is probably way better at providing the services provided that you, you know, follow the rules and give him the money. But the problem is that, like, by putting together, you know, by trying to put together the Afghan government, we're essentially, and the Afghan central government itself is trying to bring in some of these warlords, many of whom are massive war criminals. They're not Taliban, but they're also potentially just as evil and equally horrible and have committed massive atrocities. So they're trying to bring those people in. And because, like, it's a political system, you want to bring those people in, right? Because you need to have them working for the government. So they brought in like one of the most notorious warlords and made him, I think, you know, Ministry of Defense or brought him in to the central government like defense. And that's really problematic, right? Because you have like these people who have been suffering at his hands forever. And now like he's the legitimate representative of the government. So that's part of like the conflict here is that you have so many divided loyalties and you're trying to bring all these disparate groups together and make this kind of national you know, single unitary body that's going to fight together against this one group. But in reality, they're all fighting against each other. It's just a hot mess. And so 
that's in large part why it's so complicated because there's so many different groups and different interests um, kind of playing out on the ground. Wait, because the the central government itself is this incredibly sort of stitched together <laughs> exactly thing, right? Where where they they have a, a president is a, a, a CEO and a president <laughs> is a is a Pashto guy who used to work at the World Bank is sort of liked in the international community, but then he has all these different vice presidents who are like warlords from different northern Afghanistan ethnic groups who are willing to pledge allegiance to the central government, but it doesn't function like a well-run state. Right. right? We were I mean, basically trying to to head off like a massive full-on civil war, even though it's kind of already obviously happening in, in Afghanistan. But so we essentially kind of like strong-arm them into having a president and CEO, which not a lot of countries have CEOs. It's just kind of rather bizarre. So you have Abdullah Abdullah and you have Ashraf Ghani, who are essentially, like, represent different constituencies. It would kind of be like taking a Republican and a Democrat. It would be like forcing, like, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump to run the country together. And I'm sure Americans can probably figure out how well that would work out. And so it's kind of the same thing, only add in massive violence and the Taliban and weapons and war for decades and decades and decades that have been ravaging Afghanistan, plus, you know, ma- massive refugee outpour. Like, it's just a, a massive mess. So, so yeah, I mean, even the federal government itself in Afghanistan is deeply divided, deeply schizophrenic. One of the parts about this that is kind of amazing to me over the years, if you gave sodium pentothal to a lot of people in the military and said, okay, what do you really think is likely to be in Afghanistan? What 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 should we actually, like, no bullshit, what should we actually go for? A lot of them would say the Taliban moderated running the country again. That would be, like, in their gut what they think will happen, what they know will likely happen, and sort of what they could accept. That if you had the Taliban, because bear in mind, the, the Taliban was not a terror group as we think of it. They sheltered al-Qaeda, but the Taliban has never carried out an attack outside of the borders of Afghanistan. They have fought brutally inside. They've killed civilians, women, children, Americans, but they've never, like ISIS or, or al-Qaeda, tried to hit a U.S. embassy or to carry out an attack in, in downtown London. So Afghanistan, if you said to somebody, like, what's likely to be the case 20 years from now, what's likely to be the case is the Taliban controlling, if not all of the country, pretty much all of the country. And frankly, much of our government, even though we would ho- be horrified by what they do to women, what they do to children, would kind of think, well, okay. I mean, it's not a core national U.S. national interest right now. If they don't shelter al-Qaeda or ISIS, if they fight them on our behalf, we can kind of sort of, you know, turn our eyes away and, and try to block the nose and block the stench. I mean, we have made deals with horrible groups all over the world, the Pakistanis, Saudi the Saudis. Right. We could make a deal with the Taliban. I mean, bear in mind, pre-9-11, the Taliban sent trade representatives to the U.S. We had diplomatic and business ties to the Taliban. We could theoretically do that again if we felt they were no longer a threat to harbor terror groups. Predicting anything is always dangerous. Gambling on anything is almost dangerous. I, I could tell you that based on <laughs> how the NBA finals Rampant just went. gambling. Um, my, my gambling problem kind of cost me. But we can wager, I would wager everything I have, you that really there will would. never be a moment where the U.S. can say the Taliban has lost. Never. Right. Not in my lifetime, my children's lifetime, my grandchildren's lifetime. And if that's the case, at some point, we'll cut the loss. This is, to me, where the sort of the passing element of this comes in because I, I I'm not as you know well versed in this as, as you are but I I mean I've spoken to American officers who served in Afghanistan and they never expressed to me like optimism about <laughs> this mission as as you right. were saying but it's also a weird situation where if you ask them oh do you want more resources so you can do your job better or should we just tell you to give up 
Like, they're not going to say that. I mean, they might say it, you know, off the record to a journalist, but, like, your official position in a memo as the member of a military bureaucracy is always, yeah, I could do a little bit better if you gave me a little bit more, right? I think, I think even in private, I think they many would be reluctant to say that, in part because of just kind of, like, the sunken cost fallacy, right? Like, they have seen their comrades die, you know, and sacrifice. And, you know, they've sacrificed for, you know, decades. Some of these people have been, you know, going back now, their kids are going into Afghanistan, you know, where they had previously served. So there's also a tendency to not want to say like, well, then we did this for literally nothing. We've been fighting for almost two decades. What did my friends die for? You know, what did my family die for? There's an understandable kind of psychological and emotional reason beyond like military, you know, clear-eyed military strategy that people in the U.S. military would not want to just completely say, well, I guess we're over. We're over it. Let's just get out of here. So that's to say, right, I mean, if you need someone, it's that kind of thing that that you were talking about, Yoki. I mean, that's a call to be made by a president, right? It's it's not the call of a three-star general or of a CENTCOM commander right, or even of exactly. a secretary of defense, right? Exactly. I mean, to say we are fundamentally reassessing our strategic interests here. That's the president's job, right? You can't delegate that and, to and the Defense Department. That's what Obama spent nine months doing when he first took office. And I mean, I covered that when I was at the Wall Street Journal pretty intensively. And it was meant to be a whole-scale reassessment, and it was not. I mean, it was just a, a waste of a lot of intellectual capacity because if it was a full assessment, you would say, okay, we have this number of troops there. Should we have this number? Should there be more? Should there be less? And the less part was never debated. It was only a question of how many more do we send. And the strategy part was never debated. We were doing counterterror and counterinsurgency before that. Afterwards, Obama said, okay, no more counterinsurgency, which is costly and takes a lot of time. We're only going to do counterterror. That same week, David Petraeus was testifying on the Hill and said, nope, we're doing counterinsurgency as well. And so the, the whole nine months got us to the same place, except with more troops doing the same thing, which hadn't worked. So you can double, triple, quadruple down on the number of troops you have there, but the end state has to be realistic. The end state right now is this very minimal, there's some kind of peace deal and then we can call it a day, but even that really minimal end state isn't happening. So you're right. At some point, some president has to say, enough, you know, chalas in Arabic, like we're, we're done. This is about as good as we can get. I'm not sure if it'll be Donald Trump. Plausibly, it could be, right? If you're an America first guy, a plausible line of thought would be, okay, Afghanistan last, America first, close it like the door on your lap, you know, play me out the door. He hasn't as of yet, but you can imagine easily if he's office in office another year, two years, three years, if the casualties keep mounting, that he does finally say, I'm not doing this anymore. We, you know, we've done what we can. We've lost enough and we're done. We're out of here. And another thing that's really important that you need to do that is a State Department, um, which we don't really seem to have. So, I mean, if if the answer to Afghanistan is that like the military strategy alone won't do this, that you can't just have the generals figuring out how to do Afghanistan and come out with some sort of resolution, you need the people who have also been on the ground in the diplomatic corps and, you know, doing the state building, doing all that stuff. And by like dramatically cutting all of those people and not hiring those people, you're not going to get any of that done. So with that cheery thought, uh, we should probably wrap up. Victory is at hand. (laughs) 
Um, at Huzzah. least the, the end of the podcast is at hand, if, if not the war. Um, we'll be back next week with Ezra and Sarah and uh, Yoki and uh, Jen are going to be launching Worldly on Thursday. Uh, so check that out and subscribe wherever fine podcasts are sold. Check out the uh, the Weeds Facebook group if you if you haven't already. Um, thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to our producer, uh, Peter Leonard. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, man. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye. Bye.